The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. We pray for us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak as we come under the word, that we would humble ourselves, and that we would receive this word with meekness, that we put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, as your word tells us, to receive this implanted word which is able to save our souls, and to receive it not as the words of men, but as it really is the word of God which is at work in us believers. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would accompany your word, illuminate it, speak to us, and may we see our great need for Jesus, and that we would see how he has conquered the evil one, and that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at Matthew chapter 2. Uh, verses 13 to 23. If you've read C.S. Lewis's classic book, Mere Christianity, one of the chapters is entitled, The Invasion. And I made reference to that at the Christmas Eve service, and somebody actually asked me, where's that reference from? And I couldn't remember. I had to go back and find it. It's from Mere Christianity. But The Invasion, he says this right in the middle of the chapter. Lewis says, one of the things that surprised me when I read the new, first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism that this universe is at war. But it does not think this is a war between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. Enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you're really listening into the secret wireless from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and laziness and intellectual snobbery. So let's consider afresh this story that's a little different than the other stories you've heard at Christmas and a little different than the Christmas cards you've read and a little different than the Christmas carols that you've sung. This is God's word. Now when they had departed, picking up Matthew 2.13, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. 
This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, In place of his brother Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, Matthew's gospel, as you recall, begins with a genealogy of Jesus, Jesus' family tree. And this seems backwards to us, possibly, listing all these names. It's like watching a movie and seeing all the credits run before the movie ever starts. And then Matthew, in only Matthew's gospel, tells us of this narrow escape from Herod's sword and fleeing to Egypt. You see, Matthew really wants us to see something, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one promised from Abraham and from David and from the woman, from the seed who would crush the serpent's head. And the Messiah will succeed everywhere where Israel has failed. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and in reading the narrative I just read, got a question for you. What story of old does this sound like? Here are the clues. A ruthless king has the people of God under his thumb and he oppresses them and he ruthlessly kills the baby boys. But one child narrowly escapes into Egypt through the quick thinking of the boy's parents and God's providence. Any clues? If not, you could look at the sermon title and get a real clue. The new Moses and the new Pharaoh. You see, Matthew is painting his picture with the canvas of Moses and Pharaoh in the background as the watercolor. So that you would see that Jesus is going to save his people like Moses, but even better. He will save them from their sins, and that Herod is going to be the new Pharaoh in this story. And just as Pharaoh was outwitted, and the baby was going to, who's going to save Israel was protected. Here too, baby Jesus is protected. As he flees to Egypt, as his parents become refugees, fleeing to Alexandria, where about a million other Jews had escaped the thumb of Herod. And so this story has echoes, loud echoes, of Israel's escape and deliverance from Egypt. Because Matthew wants us to see that this is the the blueprint for how he's saving us. 
But the story also has another watercolor to it or another picture in the background that we already looked at in the call to worship, and that was Revelation chapter 12. And in Revelation chapter 12, we tend to get caught up in all the numbers and the stuff that was really kind of confusing in the chapter because, you know, we tend to see, we want to read things chronologically, and some of Revelation 12 doesn't fit chronologically. It's like watching a movie, and then part of it zips back into a scene and shows you something from before, but it all ties together. And so what we see in Revelation 12 is that Jesus' birth didn't just excite angels to celebrate. Jesus' birth excited evil to kill. And Satan will use different characters to do his bidding, Herod, Judas, and Pilate, to try to snuff out the Messiah. And Matthew is giving us the real boots on the ground, so to speak, of the picture Whereas the picture of Revelation 12 is like Toto and the Wizard of Oz peeling back the curtain. But unlike the Wizard of Oz, who's just a sham, this heavenly scene is real. It's scary. And it's a heavenly war between the angel Michael and the devil. They're in the same weight class, you might say. But Michael wins the war, bounces the devil out of heaven, and a third of the angels are taken with Satan when they got evicted. And so here in Revelation 12, we come to the theological center of this book of Revelation. What we see is the war behind all wars. William Hendrickson, in his great little commentary on Revelation called More Than Conqueror, says this, whereas the first main division of the book of Revelation, which is the first 11 chapters, it pictures the outward struggle between the church and the world, the second part of the book reveals the deeper background. We now see more clearly in the preceding division that the conflict between the church and the world is but an outward manifestation of the war between Christ and Satan, who's called the dragon. And so in Revelation 12, you got three characters and three scenes. The three characters are the woman, the child, and the dragon. The three scenes are the woman gives birth to the child. That's the first six verses. Then you have the dragon is thrown down. And then in the last part, verses 13 to 17, the dragon persecutes the woman and her seed. And so when we see it in real time from from Matthew's perspective, we see the dragon has enticed Herod to slaughter all the babies under two in Bethlehem, but that God has spared his son. And the dragon crouched to devour the child at the moment of his birth. He snaps but misses because God has protected him. Dave Silvernail is a pastor in our presbytery. He's the one who preached at Ben's ordination service. Some of you may remember him. He had a great quote in his sermon on on this. I'll give it to you. He says this, God always has a bigger plan than we can ever see from where we sit. He preserved his son so that one day his son could die on the cross for the sins of the world. These babies died now, the ones in Bethlehem, so that the baby Jesus could grow up and die later. Jesus had to escape this time so that he could not escape the next time. Seen in the broadest perspective, Jesus escaped the first time so that he wouldn't escape the second time, so that we could escape for all time. You see, God's plan 
is a plan that is mysterious, and it, and it does involve often uh, difficult things, as all these, these babies, probably 20 to 40 children, it wasn't a huge population of Bethlehem, but they were killed because of the wrath of Herod. Now let's look at Joseph's dreams for a minute. You know, do you, do you see the dreams throughout the, in Matthew's account? I mean, I recently got a fit, Fitbit for my 50th birthday from my parents. And now I've been able to all of a sudden measure things that I didn't know were humanly possible. My REM sleep, my deep sleep, my total sleep, my light sleep. Last night, I only got, I think, 39 minutes or something of REM sleep. That was, I, I, my score was not great. You know, I didn't know I could rank myself in the morning. You know, my friend used to ask me in college, you know, how'd you do last night? You know, as a joke, you know, how'd you sleep? You know, and well, now you can actually measure. How did you do? You know, well, Joseph didn't have a Fitbit to re- record his REM sleep, but Matthew actually has something better for us. Matthew tells us exactly what Joseph's dreams were. Four of them, right in Matthew 1 and 2. Did you know there were four dreams? Here they are. Chapter 1, verse 20. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Dream number one. Dream number two, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then 2.19, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to, to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And then we get one more, and it says he was warned in a dream in verse 22, and so he withdrew to the district of Galilee. We see God is supernaturally working through Joseph's dreams. And Matthew's wanting us to see that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, that God is providentially orchestrating events and supernaturally even speaking through dreams to to save Jesus' life so that later he can lay down his life at the proper time to save us from our sins. Now, you've probably heard this little jingle that the, uh, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed, right? Well, this is a big theme in Matthew is that he's wanting us to see that Jesus the Messiah is the fulfillment of prophecy. Three times in this chapter, we are told that Jesus is the fulfillment of something in the Old Testament. Let's consider those this morning because they're important. The first one is in verses 14 and 15. It says that he rose, took the child, Joseph, and, and, and his mother by night, departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So out of Egypt I call my son is a quote from Hosea 11, verse 1. Now I want you to listen for a minute, because Richard Hayes is the master of breaking down Matthew and its tie-ins to the Old Testament. This is what he says. In context in Hosea, the son is clearly the people Israel as a whole. 
The sentence is not a prediction of a future Messiah, but a reference to past events of the Exodus. Thus, Hosea's metaphor, referring to Israel corporately as God's son, reminds us or evokes a tradition that goes all the way back to God's instructing Moses to tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son. Matthew, however, transfigures Hosea's text by seeing how it prefigures an event in the life of Jesus. Matthew now sees the fate of God's son, Israel, recapitulated in the story of God's son. In both cases, the son, both Israel and the first in, in Hosea, but now it's being referred to as Jesus, they are both brought out of exile in Egypt back to the land. The effect of, he goes on to say, the effect of the juxtaposition is to hint that Jesus will now carry the destiny of the people of Israel and that the outcome will be the rescue and vindication of Israel foreshadowed in the Exodus story and brought to fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus. The prophetic text, Hosea 11.1, 1, then functions as a middle term between the two stories providing, these are big words, the hermeneutical clue, the interpretation clue that the Exodus story is to be read now as a narrative template for God's choosing and saving his people. A template that can be applied to subsequent historical circumstances, whether to God's mercy and to disobedient Israel in Hosea's day, or to God's climatic rescue of his people Israel in the person of the Messiah Jesus. So in both of those stories, both in Hosea and in Matthew's account, it's referring back to this picture of the Exodus to show you the picture of how God is saving his people. And the stories repeat. And we will see that in Matthew's gospel, that everywhere were Israel, Israel was to be the light. Israel was to be the nation and and the light to all the nations. And they were all to be brought in through Israel. And what happened was Israel failed and disobeyed. And Israel is scattered in these these verses that we read this morning, two of those intentionally from Jeremiah and Isaiah. We're talking about this difficult thing that God's people were scattered abroad. They've been taken down into Babylon. And and God is saying, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring my people back out of exile because Israel has failed. Well, Everywhere where Israel fails, Jesus comes as the new Israel. Just as Israel was 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus is going to be 40 days in the wilderness and 40 days in the wilderness and tempted by the devil. Jesus will be pictured as the true and better Moses. And Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the law. Jesus goes up on the Sermon on the Mount and gives the law. And just as uh, Moses went up on the mountain and is transfigured, and he comes back and he's glowing. Well, do we get a glowing story of somebody on a mountain in, in Matthew? Absolutely. And, and do, we, do we see in that, that transfiguration a mountain, a cloud, a glowing, a voice from the cloud, even an interval of six days? Everything is meant to be echo, echo, echo. Jesus is the new Moses, and he's saving his people. And he's saving as, as become, he's the Israel now of one. He's the obedient Israel. He's the only one who's ever obeyed. And now he will be the light to the Gentiles. And all the nations will be brought back through Jesus. 
But in this process, we see that Jesus is also bringing his people back from captivity. And that leads us to the next prophecy. You see, verse 16 to 18, we're told that Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. This was our reading earlier in the worship service. Did you catch it? Because it was in italics when we read it, so that it would jump out to you on the page. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, Rachel, you may recall, died while giving birth to Benjamin. And she's buried near Bethlehem, which is also right near Ramah. When Ramah in the, in, in the book of Jeremiah is the staging ground for the deportation of the Judean captives to Babylon. So as God's people who had fallen into sin are now being sent into exile, in Jeremiah 40, verse 1, the staging ground where all this is taking place is in Ramah. And we get this quote about Rachel weeping for her children. And the idea here is that the picture here is that um, Rachel is, is weeping for the children in, in Jeremiah. Its larger scope, though, is she's weeping for the dead and the mourning mothers of Israel. But the whole passage of Jeremiah, if you remember when it was read in the worship service, is all about hope. Listen again to these verses that we read already. It says, hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has ransomed him, redeemed him from hands too strong from him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd, their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and will give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the souls of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. And thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But thus says the, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there's a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. You see, if you recall now back to the beginning of the story, the genealogy of Matthew. Matthew wants to make, to make a connection of Abraham to David, 14 generations. David to the deportation, 14 generations. Deportation to Jesus, 14 generations. So the bookmarks is, is Matthew's wanting to, us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of promises to Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to David, that one would sit on the throne forever. And Jesus is the promise that he's going to bring his people back from captivity, which Rachel was weeping about. And Matthew's saying, ding, 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 the captivity is ended. I'm bringing my people back now. I'm bringing Israel back. 
I'm bringing my people back. And so what we see is that Jesus ends the captivity and bondage, though, that is far worse than the bondage and captivity to Egypt and to Babylon. Jesus is going to set us free from the tyranny of sin and the devil. We sang about it, and we sing about it every year. One of the great hymns that we sing at Christmas is, God rest ye merry gentlemen. I love hearing this in the mall, you know, because here's the lyrics. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power where we had gone astray. And you're shopping for your Christmas gifts, you know. To save us all from Satan's power where we had gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. So even Rachel weeping is also a foreshadowing in a context of nothing but hope that God will bring his people back. And God is not done yet bringing Jews back to himself. I think as you read Matthew, you will see that God has a special heart for Jews and for Gentiles. But he loves the Jews, and he's going to bring his people back. That will still happen, Romans 11. And so the last fulfilled prophecy that we have here is verse 23. And we're just told that Jesus went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Doesn't that just sound nice until you start reading it? and you start understanding it, and you realize that isn't a quote anywhere in the prophets. It's a summary summation prophecy statement. And the idea is to be called a Nazarene is to be despised, is to be rejected. So the idea is he's going to be called a Nazarene is like it's a play on this Hebrew word branch, which is very similar in Hebrew to the word Nazarene. And Jesus is the righteous branch, and he's actually described also as the stump You see, and this, I think, is helpful for us to see that, you know, when you think about, you ever heard the expression silver spoon? So-and-so, you know, he was a, here's a silver spoon. It refers to privileged children who've come from money, they've never known need, they're born into wealth, and they have this inheritance, and they may not even have to work a day in their life. You know, they're born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Well, think about this. Paul Miller, been reading his book on prayer, and this is uh, Jack Miller's son. And some of you guys are familiar with his writings. He, he learned how to pray when he was young. And he talked about one time he didn't have any pajamas. And the reason he didn't have any pajamas is his parents were pretty poor. And he didn't even have a bed. He was sleeping on the floor. And he told his mom, Rosemary Miller, I need some pajamas. And you know what she told him? She said, you're going to need to pray for them. And you know what he did? He started praying for pajamas. And within a week or two, two care packages came to their house. And what do you think was in each care package? Pajamas for Paul. Okay? He was not a silver spoon guy. He learned how to pray from his need. Well, how about Jesus? Jesus wasn't born in Hollywood. He wasn't born in Manhattan. Wasn't raised in Santa Barbara or Bethesda or Potomac or raised in a first-class city like England or Paris or Madrid or Venice. He was raised in Nazareth. I mean, if you were from South Africa and you're around Joburg, you wouldn't want to admit to people if you were from Soweto because that's the ghetto. 
Nathanael's response to Philip was pretty telling about Jesus, remember? We found him, Philip says, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, he was despised and rejected. He came from a low-life, nobody town. Unimpressive. Leave it out of your resume. Don't admit to anybody that you're from Nazareth. And Philip said to him, come and see. Come and see. Have you ever come to Jesus so that you could see that Jesus of Nazareth was the man of sorrows, despised, rejected with such a humble origin, so that outcast and those that were left out, the rejects, the lowly in society, would know that Jesus went lower. He's a better Savior than Moses, and he redeems us from something far worse than Herod or Pharaoh. The Bible just puts it like this in Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's come to set the captives free. Put your trust in this great Savior. Let's pray. Lord, there is none like you. And out of the ashes, we rise. We thank you, Jesus, for your humble origin. And yet we know you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, we lay our lives down, knowing that you laid your life down for us. Lord, we thank you for the privilege now to come in and sup with you. We ask that we'd open the doors of our heart and that you would fellowship with us. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.